today on Fuzzy Logic, we are celebrating Earth Science Week, running from October 10 to 16. This is a chance for us to celebrate the sciences that help us understand more about the Earth around us. And to celebrate today, we have three fantastic guests from Geoscience Australia. So let's not delay any further and jump straight into our interviews. So our first guest today on the Earth Science Week show is Dr. Patrice de Caritat, a geochemist, principal research scientist at Geoscience Australia. Welcome, Patrice. G'day, Brad. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for coming on board because I'm really excited uh, for your story today. We're going to dish the dirt on some work that was happening in Canberra on a new method of tracking the movements of criminals uh, and, of course, using soil because this is Earth Sciences Week on this very special show. Um, and uh, it's quite, a, quite an interesting story indeed. But I guess let's start by looking at the soils themselves. Uh, you're, you're trying to analyse them to see what's going in. What sort of things are you looking for in these soils? Yeah, so as you said, my, my background is in uh, geochemistry. So uh, we uh, have been analysing soils and mapping soils, uh, particularly in my case, for the last uh, 20 plus years in order to create geochemical maps and collections of maps that we call geochemical atlases. And uh, for uh, the creation of these atlases, we actually want to analyze a whole series of uh, soil properties, we call them. That's parameters that we can measure in the soil. They are often uh, geochemical compositions, such as the content of sodium and potassium and silica, etc. But they can also be bulk properties, such as the color and the density the grain size distribution, so how many sand, what's the proportion of sand grains and silt size particles and clay size particles in the soil. We can also measure things like their overall reflectance uh, at uh, various uh, wavelengths of, uh, of light or electromagnetic uh, uh, current. Um, and um, when we measure these things, they change from place to place. And that's why we're able to actually plot these in a geographical information system and show areas where a particular property might be high, another property might be low. And so a lot of uh, countries are interested in uh, creating these geochemical atlases because they can be used for a whole bunch of applications. For instance, uh, you can use them for environmental research. You can set the baseline of what the conditions of the environment was at a particular point in time, perhaps before the development of a suburb or the development of a new uh, industrial application somewhere and 10 20 30 years later you can come back to that and say that this was a state of the soil's environment at that point in time and you would think that that could be good or bad for a company to do that it could be really good actually because they could otherwise be forced to return the soil for example after rehabilitation of a mine site they could be forced to return the environment to a soil standard that is not, a, not at all representative or appropriate for the environment in which the mine was located. So it could actually make things cheaper and faster and easier to comply with uh, if they are done before development. So how many different variables are you looking at when you're analysing a soil in this way? You listed it off a bunch of properties there. Yeah, so uh, in terms of bulk properties, there's probably half a dozen to ten Um in terms of geochemistry, well, we know that there's about 90 elements that are current, uh, that are 
naturally occur in soils and, and uh, that you can that we can measure. We normally don't measure all ninety, but usually around forty to sixty is quite common. Um, and there are some properties such as uh, the infrared uh, or um, infrared uh, spectroscopy, or it's also called near near visible infrared spectroscopy, where we, fact, we in fact we measure up to 5,000 different wavelengths. So if you take each one of them or the response to each one of these wavelengths separately, that's 5,000 variables just there. So then you can see a unique pattern in each soil um, from those wavelengths, and that's the thing? That's correct. And all these other properties, they vary. A lot of them vary together, but some don't. And in fact, you would think that it would be possible to say, that one soil is unique because of this combination of perhaps 100 properties or even 5,000 properties uh, and, 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 and different from another one. Of course, the difficulty comes when two soils come from very close to, or to, to two places that are very close to one another and they are only very slightly different. And this is actually where I would like to briefly talk about uncertainty because when we measure anything in science, there is uncertainty. You can never be 100% sure that when you say that this soil has 65% silica in it, that it is 65 plus or minus zero. There, there, there is uncertainty that arises from you choosing where you're going to collect that sample, that soil sample, how you do it, whether you take it at one place or do you take it at five different places and mix them up. When you prepare the sample, when you dry it, you sieve it, you crush it, you digest it. So you chemically, uh, with acids, you digest it, you dissolve it how you analyze it, how, how well your instrument is set up, the background, the calibration, how much noise there is in the, in the response, etc. So you always end up with a number like 65 plus or minus 3%, for example. And so the next soil that you would have taken one kilometer away from that may be 63 plus or minus 3%. So you cannot say that these two soils are different. You have to accept that within uncertainty, you cannot separate them. And so that goes for one variable. It goes for all the variables, of course, uh, that you want to talk about. And this gives you this slightly fuzzy uh, approach to the geochemical mapping uh, that that we do. Yeah, but certainly that that uncertainty is uh, really important there. And I guess how much change do you expect to see naturally occurring on these soils? Um, because uh, I, I'm not sure how deep you're, you're testing either, whether it's just on the surface where I'd expect things to change more often potentially um, versus deeper down. But yeah, how much change do you see? Well, it's a very difficult question to answer because it depends what sort of scale you're looking at. So all the variation is scale dependent. Um, so we, we collect uh, topsoils because they are the ones that are, one, easiest to collect. They're here everywhere you walk on them. Uh, and secondly, they are, of course, the ones that will be uh, very important in our geochemical work, but also in this forensic work, because in the geochemical work, work this is where the plants grow. This is where the groundwater percolates into the soils. This is where we, this is essentially the layer of soil we as a civilization live of. And in a forensic sense, this is where you, you know, you, I said that you walk on it. Well, the perpetrator, potential perpetrator would have walked on topsoil, potentially collecting some dirt on in the grooves of the soles, perhaps uh, driving through a muddy a field, splashing mud all over the underbody of the car, etc. So this is why we, we focus on this particular uh, top layer of the soil, usually five cent, top five centimeters or so. Now, how does it change? You can look at a soil. So we, my background is, in fact, in really large-scale geochemical surveys. I've, I've uh, uh, instigated a few years ago 
the Geochemical Survey of Australia. So we worked at, you know, we, we did six million square kilometer of survey. So you obviously can only do this at a very low density, otherwise it becomes far too expensive. But you can also look at your backyard and you could map it. You could take a sample every meter. So creating a grid of one square meter. And you would see variation there that, of course, in the Survey of Australia would be one point. And so you could make a map of the geochemical composition of your backyard, if you like. You could even take that one square meter where you, for example, want to put a, a sandbox for your kids, and you could take a sample every five centimeters, and you would still see variation. And in fact, if you push that to the extreme, you can take a soil sample in your hand, and you can look at it under a, a binocular microscope, and you will see that there are different grains. So technically, these are this is the heterogeneity of what you're looking at because there's be a quartz grain in one place, which is SiO2, 100% SiO2, and then next to it will be a, a clump of clay, which is has some silica in it as well, but has also aluminium and potassium and other ions in it as well. So it goes, it really goes microscopic to macroscopic, this variation. Yeah, so it sounds like it's a, a clash there between the ability of the um, the science to analyse down to, to exactness versus the inexactness yep. of the soil that you're working yep. with. And so we we sort of take the approach that what we want to characterise is something that is representative of someone walking around, driving around, or you know digging a hole. So we look at the scale of several metres. And so when we collect samples, uh, for example, for this purpose of urban geochemistry, so that's making geochemical maps of a, a, an urban or suburban area, so around a city, we take a sample every square kilometre, which is relatively high density, but it's not the highest that, that you could take. And we take a sample, what we, um, a sample that we measure, or we take it on a one square metre grid, so we collect a, a small sample at every corner plus one in the centre. So we take these five Subsamples, if you like, and we mix them together to homogenize these potentially microscopic uh, variable heterogeneities that we don't want to be uh, biasing our results. We want to homogenize all of these and mix them in. So we, that's how we take our sample. We take what we call a composite sample. Well, let's dive in now into our own backyard, uh, so to speak, here in Canberra, and, uh, and, and start to explore the recent research you've done in the, the forensics field with your geochemical analysis. Uh, so t- tell me a little bit about the, the sampling you were doing across North Canberra. I'll, I'll start by saying that I actually stumbled into this field of forensics more or less by chance. I'm, I'm, I'm a geochemist. I work in uh, making these geochemical maps uh, for environmental and resource applications. And when we completed the Geochemical Survey of Australia that I mentioned uh, before, uh, about 10 years ago, one of the first uh, contacts that I received was from a uh, detective from the uh, RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And he asked me if this kind of surveys could be used for, for forensic purposes. And I had never thought of this. And I scratched my head and thought about it for, I mean, I replied to him pretty quickly, of course, but it sort of germinated in my head that, you know, how could we use these geochemical maps for, for forensic purposes? Like, I really like the, or, you know, I like the, uh, the application. I like the idea because it's, it's a really useful societal purpose for these maps that we create for science and for, of course, yes, other applications. But this is one kind of application that's completely different and that appeals uh, to the people who essentially fund our work because it's uh, the work that we do is, is all public domain. And so... As this idea was germinating and I was working on my geochemical survey data with, with, with my colleagues, um, I ended up uh, through the University of uh, Canberra um, and the National Centre for, for Forensic Studies 
getting in touch with uh, detectives and uh, forensic scientists at the Australian Federal Police at the AFP. And I had the chance to spend a year on secondment at the AFP uh, to help them uh, develop further their uh, soil forensics uh, capability. And so this idea of using maps was something that for me was completely natural, but in the world of forensics, perhaps not so uh so you uh, hasn't been used so much yeah were they already using soils in the the forensic testing at afp yeah so soils have have been used in forensics for for a very long time Sherlock Holmes, uh you can you, you can read about about soils and his uh, stories um so but um it's a as I said, when soils start becoming very similar, it becomes very difficult to to be certain that they either are either are the same or are different. So, yes, they were using soils essentially in an exclusive fashion. They were able to say with 100% certainty that these soils were different. For example, you could pick up a, a white sandy soil at Kajaran Sand in, on, on the Barambiji River, and you could pick up a clay soil uh, at Jabumbra uh, wetlands, full of organic matter and, and wet and so on. And you could take these soils and you can ask any school kid is this white soil and this black soil, do you think they come from the same place? And, of course, they don't. No, no that, that's easy, easy yeah, scientific that's, analysis. So that's there. easy. <laughs> if you take a soil on one side of Mount Stromlo and a soil on the other side of Mount Stromlo where it's both, they both are white, uh, sort of yellowish clay soils, very similar texture and composition and so on and, and, and appearance, then it becomes very difficult to say how far apart these could have been taken. So, yes, bringing the uh, whole concept of these geochemical maps and the databases that, that are behind them uh, into the world of forensics is essentially something that, for me, was a very natural thing to do, and I helped them develop uh, some protocols which led to this, uh, this, this research uh, over, the, over the last few years. So I suppose when you started off with the, the Australia-wide map, that would have been wide-scale sampling. Um, is that applicable for forensics, or do we need to drill down further? No, so this this was essentially using um, what we call an ultra-low uh, sampling density, approximately one sample per 5,000 square kilometer. It was an intelligent way of sampling in the sense that it was using nature to give us an, an already mixed uh, sample. So we, we were uh, collecting what we call floodplain sediments. So they, they are sediments that are deposited at the bottom of a large catchment after a flood, and therefore they are essentially a homogeneous mix of the main soil types and weathering rock types in this catchment. So we were using nature to help us make this sample representative or as representative as possible, but it was still very low density. So no, I wouldn't use this in a forensic sense, in, in the sense of finding where something comes from, but you could still use this to have some idea whether the sample that's collected on someone's in someone's uh, field boots, for example, someone, let's say someone is caught at an airport and you could say there is no way that this rock or this soil type exists in Australia. If it does exist in Australia, that doesn't mean that it comes from Australia, but it could be used in that exclusive fashion again, potentially. But it is, it is of course, we want to drill much further, higher resolution to, to actually be useful in, in this uh, provenancing uh, application. Have you started to... to- drill down further into to higher level sampling across yeah, so uh, Canberra that's, here? That's what we were talking about before, isn't it? So uh, coincidentally with the time that I was working at the, at the AFP uh, with the NCFS, we, 
a project was started to uh, collect samples uh, around in and around Canberra because there had never been a geochemical map or geochemical atlas of, of the Canberra region before. And uh, so the forensics uh, group there and the students, but there was a number of students that uh, that year, there was an honors project that started. Uh, we did this pilot project in North Canberra, which has since been now extended to the whole of Canberra through through a PhD project. Now, this sample, uh, this uh, pilot project, when I was uh, at the time of, I was working at the AFP, extended for 260 square kilometers approximately and uh, focused on the northern part of the ACT. So all the suburbs and the fringes around the fields and the uh, sort of a pasture land around in the reserves, of course, uh, in and around Canberra, North, North Canberra in this case, yeah. Yeah, and how much variation were you seeing across that that 260 square kilometer space? Yeah, so it's a good question. The the substrate under so the geological rocks under uh, this part of Canberra uh, are of course what controls or dominates the uh, the control over the composition of the soils. So there are two or three main different rock types. We have uh, sedimentary rocks. We have volcanic rocks. Um, and then we have very few uh, other rocks, uh, other rock types. So we see a little bit of variation, but of course, if you compare this to the variation you would see in the scale of Australia, it's it's really minuscule. So in a, on one hand, you could say these soils are very similar and very difficult to differentiate from one another. But if you look at enough parameters, and this is why we we're talking about before these hundreds of variables, you start seeing quite significant. Uh, Definitely statistically significant differences, and uh, we are preparing now uh, an atlas of soils, uh, of soil geochemistry that we're going to release uh, very soon. Was there a reason you started in North Canberra? Because I know the north south side debate is always a big one. Uh, <laughs> it was, was north I, up for a look, reason. Look, uh, I'll, I'll let that one go to the keeper. Uh, I assume it's because UC is in the north and that it was very easy to start doing field uh, experiments just around there to start with and then expand from there. Yeah, that would so. make a lot of sense, I think. <laughs> um, and I guess, can the what you're seeing in Canberra in terms of variation and that sort of thing, can those lessons from that sampling um, be applied to other cities? Um, or is it just more going to be a case of more sampling to get more results? So in terms of other cities, I think, I think this is where the application forensics is, is really interesting. So we're not saying that there is a crime let's go start a geochemical survey. Now, we're saying we should do geochemical surveys at the number, at the range of scales in Australia and, and elsewhere. It can be used for a variety of things. But in terms of forensics application, it would be really a good idea to start around our main cities because that's usually where the most crime occurs and prepare geochemical atlases of the major cities and their surrounds, because that's where they're most likely going to find application later on in, in a forensic in a forensic uh, sense. And so I think in, in Australia, I'd say this is probably the first city where this has been done for forensics, uh, but we, will, we would certainly uh, like to see this expanded to, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, et cetera, Adelaide and so on. Yeah, that would be quite interesting to continue to expand that atlas. Um, and I guess we were talking about uh, the certainty of all this sort of mapping earlier on in terms of um, the the variations and the, the percentage of certainty in science. And that comes into play so importantly in forensics as everything um, is quoted to a degree of certainty as we bring it into a court of law. Have you had a chance to, to look at um, how, how that might be used if, if it's going to be applied to a case? So 
as I said before, I'm I'm a geochemist. I'm not a forensic scientist. I sort of just sort of lend my, uh, I guess, narrow view or angle of, of experience uh, on on things to to, to 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 try to help the the approach. Now, I haven't uh, applied this kind of approach in, in the court setting at all, and I probably never will. But uh, it could well be taken up by uh, you know policing and intelligence agencies uh, later on. But I might say that. Uh, Cases ha- have been brought to uh, Australian courts where soil evidence, soil forensics, so geoforensics ge- essentially, have been uh, applied and uh, de- decisive in the, in, in, the, in the decision of the courts. So there, there is definitely precedent for that. Yeah, it's it's amazing the the different ways that we can start to to utilize that. I think in those cases, is it more um, confirmation that that someone was somewhere, or is it uh, confirmation that they they weren't anywhere near it? Do you know much about any of those? Yeah, so I mean, you, you can read some of the cases are publicly available, and definitely some some of the information, some of the data, or the evidence has been used to say someone was somewhere and where they were initially denying it, and then been able to to demonstrate and convince the jury that, that they they were there. Yeah, and I, I was wondering too. This you talked about. Uh, this was kind of your first foray into the forensics world. Mm. Have you had a chance to apply any of your other geological techniques uh, to the world of forensics? So one of the things we're trying to develop now is use more min- or include mineralogy as well as geochemistry. Uh, and then also I'm doing a little bit of uh, isotopic geochemistry. So now talking about isotopes means that we're not just saying that there is a particular element in a sample. We're also trying to say what sort of, what sort of that element is it. For example, uh, there's an element called strontium that's often found in, uh, in, in calcite and carbonate rocks. Now, this strontium has itself a fingerprint that we call an isotopic composition. And so we're trying to apply, or you know, there's this, this groups uh, around the world that are trying now to push to use isotopes as well. And they have been used in forensic food tracing as, actually for, for quite a while. And uh, it's, it's kind of bringing a different and a, yet, a, yet another perspective on things. And that's how I was saying before, this, you know, the science has multiple ways of, 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 of tracing what, what's been happening in, you know, um, it will always be there will always be something else if you like something more sophisticated more uh, uh, advanced uh, also probably more expensive and more time consuming to 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 acquire uh, that can be applied and that's probably why these things aren't used in an everyday sort of situation but they can certainly be called called upon and in this vein i will mention the dna stuff that i just uh, alluded to before so the, the genomic composition of soils and the dust that comes from soils uh is potentially also something that if it could be sampled and analyzed in an, in an adequate way, it could become a very powerful uh, means of uh, tracing foods and people and movement of people and, and goods for that matter. Yeah. yeah, so you're saying that soils have DNA? Is that, I mean, because soils aren't necessarily yes. a living thing, but is that coming from the living things within the soils or yes. from us as humans? No, no. Well, both really. I mean, we are living on them after all. But uh, everything that's living is is uh, is uh, contains DNA, of course, and, and leaves DNA uh, around it. So, uh, for example, I was reading a paper the other day about someone who had measured uh, soil compositions around a zoo somewhere, and they had found in the soil they had found DNA of animals, you know, exotic animals that were, of course, not natural to the environment that came from that zoo. So. Yes, uh, we shed DNA when we breathe out and we touch something, we leave 
And so yeah, the, it's coming back to the soil, of course. Uh, that's coming now from all these organisms that live on the soil. The soil is absolutely chock-a-block full of uh, microorganisms. There's millions and millions of bacteria in a, in a, in a, in a, in a symbol of, of soil. So they leave a trace. And uh, to the extent that their this this uh, biome is controlled by the environment in which they live, the, you know, the climate, the altitude, the weather, you know, all these uh, parameters, I guess, uh, you know, whether they live in a tropical area or a desert area, an alpine area, all these biomes have different mixes of animals and therefore different mixes of DNA. So it sounds like your work is going from starting at the geochemistry and there's just the potential to keep applying more and more areas of science to, to get a, a deeper and deeper analysis and work, find yeah. out what's going on. Look, this this is a bit of a hobby at the at the moment. Uh, the sense that uh, my, you know my my main work is is uh, documenting these uh, geochemical variations to try to understand the the, uh, the the earth around us and what the geology tells us about what's underneath and what sort of composition of groundwaters and soils we have and so on. This is a little bit of a sideline. This forensic work. I'm very thankful actually for for Geoscience Australia uh, to Geoscience Australia and the and the AFP and University of Canberra for. Uh, allowing me to, to to sort of do this work in, in in that context, it is it's very exciting. It's very sort of different uh, out of the field for me, uh, but uh, look, it's 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 wonderful to be able to, uh, to 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 see that something we've worked on for you know for more than twenty years can actually have a completely new and I think very useful application. Certainly a, a very interesting hobby that you have, Patrice. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for sharing it with all of our uh, listeners today on uh, Fuzzy Logic. Not at all. My pleasure. And that was Dr. Patrice de Caritat, geochemist and principal research scientist at Geoscience Australia. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM. Our next guest for this special Earth Science Week episode of Fuzzy Logic is Natalie Schroeder, who's a collection officer at Geoscience Australia. Good morning, Natalie. Good morning. Thanks for coming on board. I'm really excited uh, because you've got a great historical story to share with us today about a a paleontologist, Australia's first female Commonwealth paleontologist who helped to solve a crime right here in Canberra back in the 50s. So maybe we can kick off with introducing this uh, amazing woman uh, who's Irene Crespin. Who was she? Irene Crespin was, as you said, uh, um, an early Australian paleontologist, female paleontologist. She was um, part of the original staff of the geological branch of the Home uh, Department of Home and Territories, um, which is a very early sort of precursor organisation to the Bureau of Mineral Resources, which then became Geoscience Australia. Um, she um, started there in 1930, uh, 1927, sorry, and she retired in 1961, so she had a very long career. Um, she was a second, second paleontologist um, and... She did that role um, from 1936 to 61. She was the first of the Commonwealth paleontologists to work in Canberra. She came to Canberra in 1937 when there were about 6,000 people here. 
Um, and um, yeah, she was a micropaleontologist, so um, that's the study of the fossil shells of single-celled creatures, um, and they're very useful in finding resources, um, especially oil. So that was what her main thing was. Right, so she was finding uh, shells and that sort of thing to find oil. Was that the main work of a Commonwealth paleontologist back in the 1950s? Uh, for a micropaleontologist, it was probably a fairly um, major line of employment, yeah, um, with, but more with oil companies rather than with a government organisation, no? Yeah, okay. So quite interesting indeed. The early days of Geoscience Australia that she was taking part in. Um, but today on Fuzzy, we are talking about some forensic applications of uh, geoscience. And uh, Irene Crespin helped solve a crime in her time as a as Collingwood paleontologist. Can you tell me a bit about this uh, crime that occurred? It, was, um, it happened uh, just before Christmas in 1946. Um, there was a break-in at the Royal Canberra Golf Club, um, which um, Irene was a member of the Royal Canberra Golf Club, so it's probably not entirely coincidental that she got um, brought into the, the case. Um, they would have known what she did for a living, so um, when it turned out that uh, her skills might be useful, they knew exactly who to call on. Um, yeah, so in this crime, a safe was stolen, um, and it had about £230 worth of cash in it and cheques and um, 18 gold medals. Um, so two, £230 is a decent sum of money in the day, so it was a reasonably major incident. Yeah, and um, sorry, did you say 18 gold medals? 18 gold medals. Right. <laughs> According to well, the newspapers, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just curious where those medals came from. Were they local Canberrans who well, deposited their gold medals uh, with the, the club? <laughs> I'm sad to say the um, newspaper reports don't um, tell us that. And, yeah, um, yeah and um, Irene wrote these wonderful memoirs and she mentioned these 18 gold medals, but she didn't elaborate on whose they were either. Oh, we'll just have to ponder ourselves and <laughs> work it out, yeah. Yeah, anyway, anyway the police had um, several lines of circumstantial evidence that they led them to have a, a sort of a fairly serious suspect, but they couldn't couldn't actually prove that it was him. Um, they recovered the safe that had been blown open um, and took some samples of this odd um, whitish stuff that was in and around the safe. Um, and because they had enough evidence to have a bit of a hint, or a strong hint of who the, the suspect might be, when they went to his house, they found some trousers with this similar-looking strange stuff on them. Um, so they took them in as evidence. Right. Um, so strange, strange white stuff on the trousers. Yeah, good and um, interesting uh, to hear forensics back in the 50s. And what did they do from there once they had this uh, strange material? As, as I said, Irene was a member of the, the golf club, so they called on her um, to um, identify this stuff. Um, Probably have to provide a little bit of background here. Um, safes back in the day and possibly even now um, are lined with a, a soft, um, lightweight rock called diatomite, um, and it acts as a fireproof barrier. So, um, so if there's a fire, the safe doesn't melt and ruin everything. Um, and 
diatoms are a little uh, diatomite is made up of diatoms, which are little single-celled um, creatures, and um, that's the sort of thing that Irene worked on. So um, she was actually just the person to analyse this mysterious white substance, which was, um, as it turned out, the diatomites in the lining of the safe. How likely was it that diatomite would have been uh, just around naturally in, in Canberra at the time? Not very. The, the police did actually take some samples of the soil around and they were analysed as well and found absolutely no diatoms in them. So um, it wasn't local contamination. And as it turned out, the, the diatoms that were found in the um, material from the lining of the safe and on the trousers were the same sorts of diatoms and not only were they the same diatoms, they were foreign species. There's lots and lots of species of diatoms and these ones were not known from Australia. So the likelihood of um, non-Australian diatoms being in the safe and on the trousers just was vanishingly small. That's quite interesting indeed. And I, I suppose even um, uh, the likelihood that they may have come from another safe is is low too, if they were able to match the diatoms uh, between the two different samples. Yeah, well, the, the remains of the safe were where um, the, the police found it. So they, they, they knew the stuff came from that particular safe. Yeah, very interesting indeed. No, I love I love the early uh, the early work, geology helping to solve the crime back in the, the 50s. But Irene Crespin, uh, it's, it's a great story about uh, the crime solving, but that wasn't her only bit of work. What other legacies did she leave behind uh, in her time as a, a Commonwealth paleontologist? Um, she was quite the trailblazer. She, um, she considered in her memoirs she was very proud of being a, a pioneer in the study and application of micropaleontology to the search for oil in Australia, Papua New Guinea and other parts of the Pacific region. So, um, yeah, she was very proud of being a, a woman in this field. Um, she was particularly instrumental, I guess, in finding oil in the Rough Range in northern Western Australia and also in East Gippsland in Victoria, um, which led to ultimately led to the um, discovery of very successful offshore deposits. Um, and in the, east, in the case of East Gippsland, she, in 1937 to 45, she would um, try to cut her own car from Canberra to Lake's entrance um, to collect samples and ball cores and the, the like, um, which is a pretty intrepid, intrepid trip back then. Um, and I'll just read you a quote from her memoirs. The road from Canberra to Lake's entrance via Cooma, a distance of 275 miles or 440 k's in the modern parlance, in those days was very poor, being unsealed as far as Orbost. I've driven back to Canberra through bushfires, fogs and mud. It was a lonely drive when I was on my own. I don't know that there's too many people would tackle that by themselves today, let alone back then. Yeah, no, that's quite quite an impressive trip on um, on unsealed roads and uh, in a car that I'm sure wouldn't have been as comfortable as our modern day ones too, <laughs> or as reliable. <laughs> so yeah, she she was also probably quite instrumental um, within well, the institution that's now GA um, because the, uh, the GA and BMR have continued to. Um, be quite progressive with, with um, employing women. Um, there have been several other uh, female paleontologists. In 1937, there was also a, an assistant uh, paleontologist, Joyce Gilbert Tomlinson, um, and Mary White, the well-known paleobotanist, worked for 
um, the BMR, Bureau of Mineral Resources, I should say, um, for a while. Also, uh, Elizabeth Truswell was a fossil pollen expert. She, she worked, worked with us for quite some time too. Her work was quite quite um, well rewarded too, I think. She, in 1960, yeah, 1960, she got a, uh, was given a, or awarded, you don't get given, a Doctor of Science degree from Melbourne Uni. Um, there are very, very few of those conferred on women. You could count them on the fingers of one ear, I think. Um, and she also got an OBE in the in 1969, um, which she was thoroughly chuffed about. And um, the, her family actually recently donated her OBE to Geoscience Australia, and it's now on display in uh, the Crespin uh, innovation Lab at Geoscience Australia, so people can come and see it now if they so desire. Yeah, so it sounds like Irene Crespin was quite a, a trailblazer in her work, which is amazing. And I guess the importance of her work to her during that period of time, you talked about uh, finding yeah. the uh, oil deposits both in Australia and offshore, and, and that would have been uh, very important in that period. We're moving away from fossil fuels now, but back in the 1950s, that would have been driving Australia's industry and economy, I imagine. Uh, it certainly would have. Yeah, we're, we're, um, it's not so fashionable these days, of course, for good reason, but, um, yeah, she was quite the pioneer there. Yeah, and uh, thanks so much for uh, sharing uh, the story of Irene Crespin uh, as Australia's uh, first Commonwealth paleontologist and her crime-solving abilities. It's uh, certainly made a, another addition to, to just showcasing how uh, geoscience can be applied in so many different ways to the world around us. Thank you for the opportunity to spruik our collections. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Natalie. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. <laughs> that was Natalie Schroeder there, Collection Officer for Geoscience Australia. You're listening to 2XXFM Community Powered Radio. And routing out our guests for this Earth Sciences episode of Fuzzy Logic is Dr. Keith Serkham, Director of Laboratories at Geoscience Australia. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, Brad. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, mate. Thanks for coming along today. Um, I'm really keen to explore another aspect of geoscience with you and how that uh, is uh, being applied in a bit of a forensic way, which is what we've been doing today. Um, and we're going to start looking by talking about ancient rocks. Um, and there's a, a machine that you use to date uh, these ancient rocks called a shrimp. Yes. Now, tell me, what is a shrimp besides a... something that's in the ocean? <laughs> <laughs> what is a shrimp? That's a very good question. Uh, the shrimp is a, the, the, the name, the acronym stands for Sensitive High Resolution Iron Microprobe. And, and I'll, I'll explain what all that means, but the uh, the acronym itself is a bit of a play on words because the, the shrimp is actually really large. Um, it's about 12 tonnes in size. Um, it'd be sort of the equivalent of size of sort of like seeing a car and a trailer parked in a garage if you were to sort of visualise how big the machine is. Um, and its job is to, even though it's very large, is actually to measure very small things. Um, so we have one of these instruments at Geoscience Australia. And what we do with it is analyse uh, small grains of uh, minerals out of particular or particular minerals out of rocks, 
in order to work out how old they are and work out what the age of the rock when it formed. Right. And so what are you looking at within those rocks to determine age? Uh, we're after particular minerals. That um, There's uh, one in particular called zircon, which is very good for this sort of work. Um, but there's a few others as well. There's minerals like monazite and xenotime. Um, and we can and we can also use it to look at other um, minerals and, and uh, chemistry as well. But the, the main thing we're interested in is uh, uh, measuring what we call the uranium lead date inside these zircons. So when the, when the zircon forms, um, it's a zirconium silicate, uh, if there is, and it forms from a molten rock, so you imagine a magma really hot, it's starting to cool down, crystals are starting to form, and zircon is one of the first to form. Uh, when it forms, uh, starts forming, if there's any uranium happens to be in that melt, the uranium actually substitutes nicely inside the crystal structure and gets locked in there. So zircon forms, comes a rock, sort of sits there, can sit there for hundreds of millions of years, and over geological time, that uranium decays to lead. And uh, what we then do is come along, pick up the rock, smash it up, get the minerals out, which is um, quite a tricky art in itself. Um, you know, you can smash up a rock into a powder very easily, but to smash it up to a point where you could just get these minerals out because uh, they're about the size of fine sand, so they're, they're, they're pretty small. Um, and so then what we do is mount them up um, and put them in the shrimp, and then we... Uh, uh, what the shrimp does is, is focus a, a beam of ionized oxygen, about 20 microns in size, so a very small spot. A, you know, a typical human here is about, say, 100 microns thick. So you could get about four or five of these spots across a human here. Um, and uh, what the oxygen beam, that ionized oxygen beam does is it's sort of like a uh, an atomic scale sandblaster. So it hits the grain, splutters off uh, you know, a portion of that grain, and uh, some of that material gets ionised and hopefully some of that, uh, if there's uranium and lead in that, that part of the mineral, it gets ionised as well, accelerated through the rest of the, the instrument and uh, sorted for mass and energy and then we can measure it and do um, some fairly complicated mathematics but then we can get an age at the end of it so we, you know, we can say, oh, this, you know, this uranium-lead ratio means this rock is 400 million years old or it's... You know, three and a half billion years old. It's you know that, that, that's the sort of numbers we get out. Yeah, so I guess you're seeing the the chain, the rate of change from uranium to to lead, and it's yes. those sorts of ratios that you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I I think it's quite interesting too as you're talking through that. I'm going okay. So you're you're ionising a single grain in here, but within that grain, there are many different um, elements that that form oh. part of that single grain. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no, Quite an amazing scale. And so how is uh, the, the shrimp used in the geology world generally? Is it just for, for dating? Why are we so interested in dating uh, these different samples? Well, for, for the work we do at Geoscience Australia is largely focused on dating dating the rocks because it's um, it's a fundamental data set that we use for everything. You know, you could think of it as a foundation for all other geology because the Earth has such a long history and you know, it's, it's four and a half billion years old. Um, and if you're trying to understand the evolution of the earth or trying to map it, try to understand its resources and how to manage those resources, you need to have some idea of how everything sort of fits into that history. Um, so you probably um, heard from Natalie about the fossils and, and things like that. Um, the fossils only get you so far back in, in time. And before that, there's no fossils. So in order to work out the ages of the rocks, we need to look at those minerals. Um, so, a big part of our job is yeah to to date those rocks and then work out the ages and so people can map those and use them for their research projects. 
Um, but it, the, the instrument can be used for other other uh, things as well. So, you know, we can get uranium lead out and we can also get other elements out as well. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, really interesting indeed building up that, uh, that baseline understanding of uh, our geological world. Um, but as I think we keep coming to in, in today's episode, uh, geoscience does some really interesting work, but it's also really interesting in the different ways this work can be applied. And uh, recently you've been using the shrimp in a bit of a different way um, to support some research coming out of Flinders University. Can you mm. tell me a bit more about the work from Flinders? Yeah, certainly. The, it, was, it was quite interesting. It's a, a bit but uh, certainly out of the ballpark when the, the, the request came in to look at this. So, um, as I said, the, the shrimp can also look at other elements within a mineral grain, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a mineral grain. So what um, it was uh, Kelsey Seifang and Paul McBride from Flinders University, they work in the, um, the forensic group that, at Flinders there, and what they were interested in was, um, was glass from gunshot residue, of all things. So uh, it was quite a... Interesting learning experience that um, in a bullet, uh, you have the, the the explosive in the bullet that, you know, basically makes it go bang in, inside the cartridge. And in order to, for some bullets, in order for to get the, to optimise that explosion, they have what's called a glass frictionator. So they have little tiny particles of glass sort of mixed in with the explosive to sort of help it do its thing and accelerate the bullet. Um, but some of that glass... When it gets when the bullet explodes and and shoots the bullet out and you get this sort of spray of gases and, and things, some of that glass is also carried out with the bullet as well, and sort of gets spread around the crime scene or on on the hands of who's holding the gun and things like that. So, um, so what they were interested in was understanding, um, you know, they could they could collect this sort of material um, from from a crime scene. The, you know, forensics people are very good at finding really small things like that. But what they wanted to know is if there was a way they could then analyse the chemistry of those glass shards and trace it back to the manufacturer of the bullet. So, you know, could they say what type of bullet was used um, uh, at the crime scene? Right. So that's a, a really interesting application next year. I know gunshot residue, they've been collecting that for, for quite a while, but in the past I think it's just been to confirm that a gun's been fired mm. um, but now you're saying we can match it back to the gun manufacturer so what sort of variations are we looking at in the class does it does it change that much from um uh yeah manufacturer to manufacturer well that's that's part of what the project was about so we were they were looking at the shrimp again for that that property being able to analyze very small parts of the grain and in particular to um, preserve the sample by and large because the spot size is actually quite small and only takes away a very small amount of the sample. So from an investigation point of view, preserving as much sample as possible is important. Um, but they also they were also looking at other methods as well, um, things like uh, what we call EDS, which is an um, electron microscope um, method for looking at um, large of uh, the um, the major element, what we call the major elements and things like that as well. Um, so it's still work in progress from what I understand in particular because it's one of these projects and it's um, it's probably similar from what you heard from Patrick is about the soil the, um, forensics work is uh, uh, in order to be able to make that sort of diagnosis from an unknown sample, you actually need to have quite a large database of known samples. So this is where the, the work with the... Um, 
you know, we were helping with with Flinders was to start assembling some of that data because they they could get material. You know, they could obviously get bullets from different manufacturers and start, um, you know, getting the material out. And we were part of that process to start analysing things. And it, it looked, um, you know, the parts we were involved in did look promising. Is that yes, you could distinguish between different types of bullets and different manufacturers. So, what isotopes in particular are we looking at in the glass using the shrimp? Uh, we were looking at uh, lithium and boron in, in those uh, those glass fragments as well because they're uh, they're a common element within within the, the glass manufacturing um, process. Um, so it was thought that if you know if there were differences in the manufacturing, like if, you know manufacturer A put a bit more boron in, for example, or a particular chemistry of boron, that that would show up in, in the isotopes as well. So looking at the, the ratio between the different isotopes of lithium and, and boron uh, was uh, felt to be a, a, a good way to investigate uh, uh, who made it. You're slowly building up that database. Do you know if this has been applied to any real-world circumstances yet? No, as far as I know, it hasn't because, yes, there's still – work to be done in building up that database yeah so that's interesting and i guess one of the things we talked about uh earlier with um with uh, patrice was looking at um the uh accuracy and uh, the the measurements of error in in the soil calculations what sort of error measurements do you do you see in uh, in the work in the the shrimp uh, when you're working on such a small scale is it really accurate or is there still lots of variation that can be seen oh uh, it really depends on the sample brought it's um if if everything behaves itself and you've, and you've got a, a reasonable amount of uranium um, and lead, say, for the geochronology side, which I'm more familiar with, uh, we can get reasonable precisions of sort of um, down to, you know, below 1% usually. Um, and it, it, all, it becomes a bit of a numbers game as well. As it's about, it's, we just don't do one spot on one grain. It's, it's sort of like for a typical analysis on a rock, for example, we would be analysing like 30 or 50 uh, separate grains from that rock and then doing a um, what we call a, a weighted average of all of those to come up with you know the number which you know it can be quite precise again depending on on the chemistry of the of the sample you're looking at yeah so it sounds like you've got a great opportunity here to not only sample things but get some uh, quite accurate uh, sampling in there too through the shrimp yes yes because well, the the method because it's um once you've got things separated from the rock the, you know the method lends itself to sort of being you know you can repeat samples you can get the sample back you know a week later a month later and do it again and, and do it in different ways so it, it's sort of um yes over the years it's become quite a precise and a pre- very accurate um process that you know because we've we've gone through all that experimentation of of finding the you know the optimal way of of analyzing it so this is a great application of, of the shrimp in the forensics world, um, but is uh, is this the first time the shrimp's been used for, for applications outside of geology or have, have there been some un- other unexpected uses of this uh, machine? Uh, well, actually, right, in, right from the early days in, in, when they built the first instrument in the 1980s, one of the you know, things they were looking at wasn't just uranium lead, but they were looking at uh, trying to understand isotope systems in, in um other rocks and other minerals as well. So uh, that's always been a theme uh, through shrimp work. Um, things like looking at rare earth elements uh, in zircon in particular, because again, that can tell you something about uh, 
the history of that rock, you know, what, what sort of chemistry it had and how it evolved over time and things like that. Um, one that you might you, you and your listeners might be interested in is, is also from the ANU. So there's um, uh, Dr. Ian Williams at the Research School of Earth Sciences has been looking at, uh, at microfossils um, and uh, particularly a, a fossil called uh, a conodont, um, which were, if you look through the layers of rocks, were quite prevalent in, in the Ordovician and, and um, Carboniferous, so you know, many hundreds of million, millions of years ago. Um, so what he's been using his shrimp for at the, at the ANU is to look at the oxygen isotopes out of those microfossils. Um, so, yes, you can tune up the shrimp to, to, to look at oxygen isotopes. Um, and uh, the ratio between the isotopes, the oxygen isotopes, uh, is a reflection of the, the temperature that that microfossil formed in, in the water at the time. So it's a proxy for telling you something about the, the climate, the, the ocean temperature, basically, when, when that formed. Um, so he and his colleagues and collaborators have been doing this to you know, both get the method working. You know, there's, there's always that exciting part of the science is just to you know, try something, see if it works and keep, it, keep at it until you get it reliably working. Um, but also as a way to uh, understand some of Earth's past climate, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago to understand something about how the Earth adapts and life adapts to changes in climate. That's, I think that's really important too with the, the changes that we're going through at the moment. Not only we need to understand what's happened in the past to help us understand what could be happening in the future. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess uh, if we get back to the, the forensic side of things with this application, you're, you're in a process of uh, trying something new, as you said, which is one of the great parts of, of science. Can you imagine any other areas of forensics where the, the shrimp might be applicable? Have, have, have there been any suggestions of taking this further outside of gunshot residue to other aspects of uh, crime scenes? Uh, yes, uh, I know, and I'm not sure if Patrice touched on this when you were talking to him, but, uh, you know, with the, the soil uh, chemistry side of things as well. There's also what we call heavy mineral analysis. I'm not, did he talk about that? Or? He, he did. We kind of got into a bit around yeah. um, exploring that further and uh, isotope analysis in the soils as well. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you're saying we could we could be using the shrimp to further our our soil maps. Potentially, yes, and that that's actually my my research area um, is in what what's called uh, detrital um, zircon geochronology. So, um, the the zircon grains that I talked about that that form um, are actually really robust minerals, and uh, they can actually um, they form like in a volcanic, oh, uh, sorry, an igneous rock, uh, or can be a volcanic as well, uh, and that rock can be eroded, and the zircon becomes sediment, it becomes sand, but it's it's a very robust mineral and can actually survive a long time. You know, being bounced down a river and, and sand dunes and all this sort of thing. We can then look at the sediment. It could be from a soil. It can be from what I used to study was from beach sand, and um, and you get a pattern. You get a pattern of ages when you when so you'd analyze like a hundred of these grains, and you'd see a pattern. There, there might be twenty percent of them, for example, were four hundred million years old, and fifty percent of them were six hundred million years old, and and so on like that. And these these patterns seem to be quite unique for different locations on on the beaches that I, I was studying. That you know, if you went back and, and looked at them again, it was kind of more or less you know the same sort of pattern. So there is, you know, it was never looked at, but there is the potential there that you know you could 
uh, you know, given a suitable sample, you could look at the, the sample and sort of say, oh, okay, this, the ages that we see here match, you know, the, these type of sand that we know exists somewhere else. So, you know, there is a potential for um, for looking at it closely that way too. Always more applications, always more ways to dive down uh, mm. deeper into our soil, uh, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> yes. and understand more. Digging deeper, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Well, look, thanks so much for um, sharing that with us today, Keith. I've, it's been another fantastic application of our geoscience work into the forensic space and uh, another great way to, to show how uh, much there is to understand about uh, what sits beneath our feet in, in the earth all around us. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Brody. You're very welcome. And that was Dr. Keith Serkham there, Director of Laboratories at Geoscience Australia, wrapping up Earth Sciences Week here on Fuzzy Logic. What an episode it has been with all these fantastic geoscientists sharing their work and the amazing work of Geoscience Australia, applying it in a bit of a forensic way today. Well, if you did enjoy that and you want to engage more with Earth Sciences Week, make sure to check out Geoscience Australia on social media. From the 11th of October on their Facebook page, they'll be hosting a satellite sleuths challenge where you have to work out what the image is and explore the Earth from above. So make sure to check that out, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Fuzzy Logic right here on 2XXFM Community Radio in Canberra. My name's Broderick Matthews and it's a pleasure to have you here with us for Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.